People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Tonight on The Readout. Student debt cancellation will change and save lives. The court knows President Biden has the legal authority to cancel student debt. And they have a clear and simple choice here. Uphold the law and we can call it a day. That's Congresswoman Ayanna Presley speaking passionately about the need for student loan debt relief with the conservative Supreme Court majority poised to possibly kill President Biden's relief plan. Congresswoman Presley will join me. Also tonight, in some of the red states with new abortion restrictions, exceptions were built into those laws. But few of those exceptions are actually being granted, putting women's lives at risk. Plus, House Republicans finally have their chance to hold hearings on their anti-Fauci, anti-mask, pro-Ivermectin conspiracy theories as a government report raises new questions about the origin of the virus. We begin the readout tonight with history repeating itself, because here's the thing. When you try to erase it, like the Florida governor wants to do, you are doomed to repeat it. Over the weekend, the New York Times published a stunning account of more than 100 migrant children, largely from Central America, who, according to the Times reporting, were working overnight shifts and dangerous jobs for companies large and small throughout the U.S. According to the report, children stitch Made in America tags into J. Crew shirts in Los Angeles. They bake dinner rolls sold at Walmart and Target processed milk used in Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and helped debone chicken sold at Whole Foods. As recently as this fall, middle schoolers made Fruit of the Loom socks in Alabama. In Michigan, children make auto parts used by Ford and General Motors. In other words, nearly all of us are likely buying and using goods fabricated by children's hands. We are all implicated in this story. These migrant children who've traveled thousands of miles are under intense pressure to send money home to their families or to the people who sponsor them in the United States. Many of them extorting the children for smuggling fees, rent, and living expenses. These children are ostensibly under the purview of the Department of Health and Human Services, who assign them caseworkers to make sure they're cared for while they are in this country. The New York Times reports that in interviews with more than 60 caseworkers, however, mostly independently, most independently estimated that about two-thirds of all unaccompanied migrant children ended up working full-time. Michigan Congresswoman Hillary Scholten, who has one of these factories in her district, is rightly appalled. Stories of kids dropping out of school, collapsing from exhaustion, and even losing limbs to machinery. These are the things that one might expect to find in a Charles Dickens or Upton Sinclair novel but not an account of everyday life in America in 2023. Surely not here in the land of the free where child labor protections have been on the books for nearly a century. 
Now, to be clear, this is outsourced labor. None of these companies intentionally hire children, as far as the reporting has shown. And when asked by the Times, a number of them said they would investigate the claims or sever ties with the companies who help outsource the jobs. But again, their decisions implicate all of us because we benefit from the blood, sweat, and tears of these child laborers. I mean, you've probably chowed down on a bowl of Cheerios packed by a teenager or enjoyed a bowl of Ben and Jerry's ice cream made from milk processed by a child laborer. Earlier this month, Packers Sanitation Services paid a $1.5 million fine for employing 102 children to work in dangerous meatpacking facility jobs across eight states. And just last summer, Reuters discovered that kids as young as 12, many of them migrants, were working at a metal stamping plant owned by Hyundai. Last week, NBC reported that Packers Sanitation Services disciplined an employee who hired the same known minor twice under two different identities. And if this story sounds like some pre-20th century horror story, that might be because you know history. And while some folks who just so happen to work in Tallahassee, Florida, might not want you to remember, America's first big business was slavery and indentured servitude. Literally, millions of young enslaved men, women, and children were the disposable fuel that created the booming economy of this country. And every consumer of cotton or rice or coffee or any number of goods produced by that labor benefited from it from the insurance companies to the shippers to the end users here and around the world. It made Southern planters richer than they could have ever imagined back in England. And then after the Civil War and during the Industrial Revolution, when American companies still wanted the cheapest possible labor and more and more of it, children became the ideal employees. They were smaller, cheaper, and uneducated, which meant that they were less likely to complain. In 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which effectively banned oppressive child labor and barred children under the age of 16 from holding non-agricultural jobs and made it so that teens from 16 to 18 could not do hazardous employment. Now, notice that they let the farms keep the exploitation going, which was why Southern senators fought to successfully exclude black workers from those protections by leaving farm workers and domestic workers out which were still the low-paid jobs held by most African-Americans, including children. Still, the Fair, Labor, the Fair Labor Act did establish a standard rule for labor practices, practices that are being skirted to this day. According to data from the U.S. Labor Department's Wage and Hour Division, child labor violations have been on the rise since 2015. Modern-day Republicans, led by the twice-impeached former president, have led the charge on deregulation. And just like East Palestine, Ohio— in East Palestine, Ohio, Donald Trump and his various agencies proposed rolling back regulations that protected workers and children. One USDA food safety official openly admitted that safety wasn't a top priority because, quote, we don't regulate worker safety. At the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, Trump officials sought to loosen reporting requirements for injury and illness data for large companies. And at one point, his Department of Labor sought to unwind decades-old youth labor protections by allowing teenagers to work longer hours under some of the most hazardous workplace conditions. States across this country took the baton from Trump and went even further. In Iowa, Republican legislators, who have a supermajority, introduced a bill to expand the types of work that 14- and 15-year-olds would be permitted to do as part of approved training programs. 
The bill would extend allowable work hours and exempt employers from liability if those young workers are sickened, injured, or killed on the job. Minnesota is looking to pass similar legislation. And yesterday, the Biden administration announced that it was creating a new task force to crack down on exploitation of the illegal, the illegal exploitation of migrant children for labor in the United States. Enforcement of child labor laws will most likely be a top issue for Julie Sue, President Biden's newly announced nominee for secretary of labor. If confirmed, Sue will be the Biden administration's first AAPI cabinet secretary. And joining me now is Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Volta Latino and an MSNBC contributor. I don't even know where to begin, but I'm going to start with you, Charles, because you have the disadvantage of not being here at the table with us. I mean, when I read this story, which is horrific, and I hope everyone takes the time to read it if you can get access to the Times, um, get through the paywall, it sounded like indentured servitude to me. These kids essentially have to send money home to their families. They are going to school in some cases full time on no sleep because they're working all night. They're literally child laborers creating everything you could imagine that we use consumer wise. Absolutely. You know, and it is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story because you put yourself in the shoes of these children. First of all, they should never have to make the decisions that they are having to make, beginning with having to trek alone to this country, but many of them feel they have no other choice but the economic conditions uh, and the social conditions and the political conditions in their, their own countries are so horrible that they would leave an, a family and walk alone for all that distance. And then to get here and be placed with uh, a sponsor who may or may not be looking out for your interest at all. I mean, some one, one of the things that comes through in the story is that some of the sponsors appear to be running some sort of, you know, uh, money making pimping proposition. I mean, there's no other way to, to for me to phrase this. I mean, they're making money off of the children. They encourage some of the children to go out and get this work. If they send them to school, they, they get the work after they go to school. Neither, not, none of us on this screen right now are working the hours that some of these children are working. I mean, it's, it is incredible, and they have no choice, or they feel like they have no choices, and the, and the federal government is falling down on the job. They're just not being able to track the, these, these many children. And, you know, there were tens of thousands of children that they basically just lost track of. How do you, what do you mean you've lost track of tens of thousands of of children. It is an incredible, heartbreaking story. It, it, you know, it's interesting. I, um, you and I were in South Texas a few years ago um, when I was doing my weekend show, and we met all of these kids who had come on their own. They were being held, I guess, and HHS was ostensibly responsible for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was clear that they weren't able to track the parents, weren't able to track the families. But talk a little bit more about this vicious cycle, because some of these kids are willingly leaving their families because they're afraid their families will starve in Guatemala. They, and so they're saying, I'm going to go and I'm now going to try to financially support or their parents couldn't make it through. And so they're going and coming and then they're just being literally exploited. So the best part of this New York Times investigative reporting is that we finally have blown the lid off what the majority of Latinos in this country know what's happening. The fact that we see so many corporations right now turning a blind eye saying that they don't know, that is not true, Joy, because the way this operation works, and I will give you a little bit of an under the hood, my family used to work in the labor, in, 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 
in the wine country. Mm -hmm. And I would ask my grandfather who worked the fields, is like, how do you find the people that work with you? He says, oh, the vineyards, they subcontract a coyote, the human trafficker, and the human trafficker goes in basically through WhatsApp and other mechanisms, tells people how many people they need and how much they're going to get paid, and they bring them through across the border and send them to the fields, and then because they're subcontracting, those vineyard folks say, oh, I don't know how these know. people get there. Yeah. And so what this incredible investigative reporting shows is that children are now are caught up. And the questions are to ask is, why are they leaving their countries? In Guatemala, as we saw in those investigative reports, we learned it's because of climate change. Yeah. They literally cannot harvest in their own homes. But then you have individuals that are clearly these coyotes that are saying, I can sponsor up to 20 children. Well, shame on the U.S. government that they are not cracking down on them, but also shame on the corporations who ostensibly say that they do not know, because we know that is such an intricate way that these individuals actually are hiring undocumented labor, whether yeah. it's children or adults, because what they do is that they say, I'm going to I'm going to contract from a subcontractor who will contract from a subcontractor and turn yeah. a blind eye. And then I am basically legally not bound. Shame on that. And the thing about it is, you know, the business I, and I, my, I, 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 my poor team, I say these things all the time to them repeatedly on a loop. But this country, capitalism, the basis of America's capitalist enterprise in the very beginning was free or free labor. Mm -hmm. Free labor, which built an empire in this country, That's right. um, made the southern states super rich mm -hmm. until they lost the free labor. Ever since then, America's big business and big agriculture has been trying to find a way to replace that free labor with labor that's as cheap as it can get. Well, there's nothing cheaper than a child who can't fight back, who can't unionize, who's literally essentially an indentured servant. They, we have replaced black sl and slave labor with undocumented labor and then accused people of being illegal as if they are the ones breaking the law. They're being compelled here. Well, and it's, I want to say it's a, such a sophisticated operations of recruitment that happens. People, most of them don't show up without a job. They already know the job they know they're, where they're destined gonna go. to go. They know yeah. exactly where they're going to go. They know if they're going to be doing construction. They know if they're going to be in the meatpacking district. These are the skills that are actively asked for by the subcontractor three times removed from a place like Tyson's Chicken. And this is what we need to have a conversation with because the Republicans are going to now try to absolve themselves from this responsibility. But one of the reasons that they're exploiting child labor is because we do not have an immigration policy right. that actually allows people to come out of the shower, out of the shadows and actually allows us to negotiate what is the labor that we need in order to maintain That's right. our industry. And isn't the reason that we don't have these policies, Charles, because these big businesses don't want to pay the kind of labor cost they'd have to pay to hire an adult who could fight back and form a union. They want it cheap. And so everyone's looking the other way and pretending, I didn't know how my chicken nuggets were made. I'm just selling chicken nuggets. Sure. They do have to know at some level. It's all about cheap labor. Yes, but but not only are the corporations responsible here, American citizens are also responsible here. We got so addicted. Oh, have we lost Charles? Oh no, I but think I we've think lost him. But I think I, I can almost finish his thought. We love cheap stuff. Right. We love to buy things that don't cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We want it as cheap as, and we don't want to think about where it comes from, right? Mm -hmm. People want the nuggets, but they don't want to think about the poor chicken right. and what it's and what it's right. dealing with. Right. Exactly. Getting well, it's unseemly to think, but we, we, the way you opened your show was absolutely every single one is, is complicit. We are everyone complicit in this, and the only way we make change is to demand that. 
Tyson's Chicken, for example, actually changes their contracting laws. And the That's Vienna's right. government actually creates repercussions for those individuals that are not just based on fines, yeah. but that are ensuring not that we're fines. doing well by these children at the end of the day. A hundred percent. I was shook when I read this story because I'm thinking... I use that. I use that. I use that. I use that. We're all implicated in this. Charles Blow, and I'm sorry for the uh, issues with technology that prevented us from hearing your final thought. And Marie Tessa Kumar, we call her MTK because we're friends. <laughs> and up next, not only are abortion rights being seriously curtailed in our post-Roe America, well, patients, patients are struggling to get abortions, even when exceptions to state bans theoretically should apply. Stay with us. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. She said, well, the sack looks good. The baby does not. Honestly, nothing could have prepared me for the weight of those words in that moment. There was concern that if I tried to just take something or pass the baby at home, that that I might have trouble and have to be transported and all of that. It just wasn't something that seemed like a very good option. And so we decided to go to the hospital, get checked in there, and go through the process of uh, DNC. Reality TV fans may know of Jessica Duggar Seawald from the show 19 Kids and Counting. The show followed her religious and famously anti-abortion Arkansas family throughout the 2000s. Duggar recently shared on YouTube that she was recovering from a DNC, that is a common medical procedure used in cases of dangerous, unwanted, or non-viable pregnancies. It removes tissue from inside your uterus, meaning a DNC is literally an abortion. Duggar didn't say that part, saying only that she had a miscarriage. The heartbreak and risks of miscarriage are profound for anybody. But Duggar is also someone who, in 2014, said that abortion is the holocaust of our time. The admission has put a spotlight on how privilege determines who is able to receive this kind of care, something that is increasingly difficult to do even with so-called exceptions in place. Those women and girls who are not so lucky include the 10-year-old rape survivor who had to cross state lines for an abortion, and a woman whose miscarriage left her bleeding profusely, only to be sent home from the ER and told to wait. Meanwhile, in Texas, conservatives are making good on their promise to make the abortion pill even more difficult to obtain. One Texas judge, a Trump appointee, is set to rule on a lawsuit that seeks to restrict access to one of the two drugs typically used to induce a medicated abortion nationwide. Joining me now is former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis, uh, the new senior advisor of Planned Parenthood Texas.
Texas Votes, the nonpartisan policy advocacy and political arm for Planned Parenthood affiliates in the state. Um, Wendy Davis, it's always great to talk with you. The, the Duggar case is interesting in that, you know, what she described as a DNC is an abortion, and yet she characterized it as a miscarriage. I wonder if even that, if anybody who wasn't last named Duggar was to try to get the same procedure, if they could even legally get that in Texas. You know, Joy, we've always known that when these abortion bans went into place in Texas and elsewhere, abortion was going to become something that privileged people could access and others could not. And honestly, I'm glad that she was able to get the care that she needed. But the point is that everyone should be able to get that care. And what's happening on the ground in Texas today, doctors are absolutely terrified to provide needed care, even if arguably it fits an exception in the law. Because if they are penalized um, as having carried out an illegal abortion in the state of Texas, that means up to life in prison for them. And it's stopping doctors even from providing miscarriage management, true miscarriage management to patients who are needing that kind of care and creating such a terrible and desperate situation for people all over our state and in other states where abortion is now prohibited. Uh, and just to go through what the Gut Marker Institute has to say about Texas, it is one of the most restrictive states. Patients are forced to make two trips um, even when they could get an abortion. Use of Medicaid and private health insurance is banned. Parental consent is required for a minor. Medication abortion is severely restricted. Um, when you go to Texas, before Roe was overturned in June of 2022, there were 17,000 uh, procedures. Um, after Roe, it went down to 74. So they have, in the state of Texas, essentially ended abortion care, but that has not ended crisis pregnancies. That has not meant women are still not in medical emergencies where they need a DNC. It's just that now women have to essentially be bleeding to death before a doctor will care for them, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things that's become so clear in all of this, Joy, is that this was never really about abortion. In fact, right now, the attorney general in Texas is literally trying to sue Planned Parenthood and the help and the health care that it provides to patients across this state every single day out of existence, because that's the point. And they're also, as you pointed out a moment ago, trying to block the use of mifepristone, not only in Texas, but in every single state in this country. And what we've known for a long time here in Texas is that this is ground zero for this fight. And whatever is happening here, I promise you, it is going to come to your state, even if you think right now it's not. And that's why we all have to be in this fight together, supporting organizations like Planned Parenthood, Texas Votes, and others who are fighting every day to restore the kind of care that Texans and others in this country need every single day. And I want to talk about this issue of exceptions, because that, you know, Republicans sort of the, their PR is that, oh, no, don't worry, we have exceptions. Uh, this is the map of the states, 26 states that supposedly have exceptions. But here's the problem. Ms. Magazine reports as follows. Exceptions function mainly as PR tools to make abortion bans seem less cruel than they are and distract from the inhumanity of the ban itself. 
because because the issue is if, for instance, there's a rape exception, they make it very difficult for you to use it because they're like, well, you have to have reported it in this amount of time. Uh, if it's an in, a rape inside the family, women might not have reported it at all. They make it so hard to use the exceptions that the exceptions actually don't work. Have you seen a case in which exceptions actually help a woman get the abortion care she needs? I personally do not know of a case like that in Texas right now. And I suppose if the statistics that you read earlier are correct, it appears that maybe some have been able to get that care. But let's face it, we've been working on the issue of rape um, and trying to solve that issue in states like Texas for a long time. Meanwhile, we've had thousands of rape kit tests sitting on evidence room shelves, not addressing that because women are not believed. And so if they're not believed in the instance of prosecuting a rape case, how are they going to believe be believed as a rape exception to an abortion ban. These exceptions, like you said a minute ago, they're really just window dressing to make these bans look more acceptable, but they're absolutely not working in practice. And we feared that they wouldn't. And unfortunately, right now, what that means is for the one in three women who live in a state that bans abortion care across this country, they are not able to get the care that they currently need. And this is a fight we all need to be in together and working, of course, to make sure, as we are here at Planned Parenthood Texas Votes, to assure that every person can get their health care and that they can yeah. live the full and vibrant life that they deserve. Well, I mean, if you can't force women to give birth against their will, how will you have the American-born cheap labor that they don't want to create laws for when it comes to foreign-born child and cheap labor? My comment, not yours. Uh, Wendy Davis, thank you very much. Up next, President Biden's popular student loan debt relief plan is in jeopardy with the Supreme Court, with its ultra-conservative majority, hearing multiple challenges to it today. Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley, who has fought tirelessly for student debt relief, joins me next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. for President Biden's student loan forgiveness program are still holding out hope, even as it appears that the conservative majority Supreme Court seems poised to sink the program after a day of heated arguments. Several conservative justices questioned Biden's authority to wipe out a half trillion dollars in debt without congressional authorization. A couple even suggested it wouldn't be fair to those who already paid off their loans or didn't take them out in the first place. 
The court's liberal justices, on the other hand, defended the Education Department's right to forgive loan debt. Justice Sonia Sotomayor indicated that ruling against the Biden administration would be changing Congress's words because we don't think we like what's happening. There's a 50 million students who are uh, will benefit from this, who today will struggle. Many of them don't have assets sufficient to bail them out after the pandemic. They don't have friends or families or others who can help them make these payments. And what you're saying is now we're going to give judges the right to decide how much aid to give them instead of the person with the expertise and the experience, the Secretary of Education, who's been dealing with educational issues and the problems surrounding student loans. As this was going on, hundreds of protesters rallied outside the high court in support of the president's program, including Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Like millions of black borrowers denied the ability to build generational wealth, I know the burden of student loan debt. I know what it is to land in default when your family is tripped up on economic hard times. And I want to talk about the shame that many borrowers carry. I'm beyond grateful to each of you who shared your story to make the case for national student debt cancellation. But let me be clear, the shame was never yours to carry. The only shame is that this nation has burdened families with this crushing debt, but we changed that. Joining me now is Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. And Congresswoman, thank you for being here. You know, this whole debate strikes me as very odd, um, that there's a question of whether uh, this president has the uh, legal authority to do bailouts. I'm old enough to remember the airline industry getting bailed out in 2001 for $15 billion, General Motors and Chrysler getting $17.4 billion in government bailouts. The coronavirus airline bailout was $25 billion. Um, it's not like the governments haven't done bailouts before. Does it surprise you that just this one is controversial? Well, it's not surprising because of who the obstruction is coming from. These Republican officials, corporate interests, uh, callous and uh, disconnected from the hardship that everyday people are experiencing from every walk of life. Uh, these uh, lawsuits are frivolous and they are partisan. The president clearly has the legal authority and we just need the Supreme Court to uphold the law. And, and, I, and I will note that these previous bailouts took place uh, under Republicans, um, and so it, it, they did not ignite the kind of uh, furor. I also seem to recall that there are members of Congress, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Vern Buchanan, um, a Mark, Mark Wayne Mullen, Kevin Hearn, and Mike Kelly. But I, I, I note Greene and Gates, who received massive forgivable student loans from the government, PPP loans, while they were serving in Congress, and they don't seem to have a problem with being able to be bailed out by, have their businesses bailed out by the government they work for. Well, moreover, Joy, um, some 40 million plus people stand to benefit from this relief. Uh, in the four weeks that uh, the president's action was live um, or going into into effect, some 26 million people applied. 
And in my district in Massachusetts, seventh out of those eligible borrowers, 70% already applied. And so Republicans want to play with people's lives. Uh, Democrats are here to change and save people's lives. And we will do that um, by ensuring that uh, those that are burdened by this debt uh, feel the relief. Uh, we organized uh, for that pause on student loan payments, and we heard from people how impactful that was. People were able to use those funds uh, to keep a, a roof over their head, uh, to pay for child care uh, and other essential costs. There are people paying uh, monthly payments or the equivalent see of a mortgage payment. This is an economic justice issue. It's a racial justice issue, given the disparate burden on black and brown borrowers. Uh, one in four black borrowers would have their debt zeroed out completely. This is a gender justice issue. Uh, out of this $2 trillion uh, debt, two thirds of that debt is on the shoulders of women. And again, Joy, this is people from every walk of life. If society is to be judged by how we take care of our babies and our elders. Well, we are failing because when I have a 76 year old grandmother crying to me that she's afraid she's gonna die still paying on this debt on a fixed income whose benefits have been garnished because she is still paying on loans at this point more than she took out. And when you have a whole generation uh, whose path we are making harder than our own even was uh, because they're choked by this debt. They can't uh, purchase a home, start a business, grow a family. When I have teachers who took on this debt because they wanted to be nation builders and educate our babies and they can't afford childcare for their own babies and the monthly minimum, and some have even contemplated suicide. The point here, Joy, is that we can do something about it. The president clearly has the legal authority and I need the Supreme Court to uphold the law. And we will keep organizing and applying pressure until this is done, just like we were negotiating with the White House until seven o'clock in the morning until there was action taken. It, very quickly, given the status of the House right now, if this is overturned, is there any hope that anything could actually get through Congress to formalize this student, don't, student loan debt relief? Joy, I'm not seeding anything. As I, I can't stop, and this movement won't stop. Uh, executive action is the most precise and effective way to bring about this relief to the 40 million plus borrowers who are eligible for it, uh, who who are crippled uh, by this every, who are burdened by this every single day. Yeah. Uh, so executive action is the most effective and efficient and precise way to get this done. And I'm not seeding uh, defeat here. Yeah. Supreme Court needs to uphold the law. The president and the secretary of education clearly have the, the legal authority. I'm going to note um, before we go that uh, Brett Kavanaugh, one of the people who will be making this decision, had 60 to $200,000 in debt accrued over three credit cards at a loan. Those credit card debts and loans were somehow paid off or fell below the reporting requirements um, by the time he was confirmed. No one has answered yet how that happened. And there are still no ethics rules for these people, these uh, conservatives who are going to be making this decision. I just want to note that for the record. Congresswoman the Ayanna Pressley. is rich. The hypocrisy is rich. More of the same. More of the same. Thank you, Congresswoman. Much appreciated. And coming up, as Republicans exploit scientific skepticism with a new subcommittee on COVID, there are now serious questions about the origin of the virus. Given the current political atmosphere, are we even capable of having an intelligent conversation about that? We'll be right back.
Today, McCarthy politics were on display with the first get-together of the newly created House subcommittee on the COVID pandemic, with the likes of Margie Green and Dr. Ronnie Jackson leading the charge. And I think you, you, you can guess how it went. I would make the argument right now, right here on TV, that we do more harm than good by treating people with booster shots. Children truly suffered, and masks were child abuse, were completely child abuse. What we have now is a complete lack of uh, trust and confidence in the public health sector. Complete lack. Uh, and that's due to a coordinated spread of misinformation and disinformation that was for political gain for the most part, and a lot of part uh, by public health officials. Oh, Lord. Dr. Ronnie seems a bit confused about who was providing disinformation for political gain. This, this clown show was designed to excite the conservative base, but it's part of a real threat to the country, perpetuating the notion that you should mistrust everything you're told by the scientific community. Now, what we do know is that more than 1.1 million Americans have died from COVID since the first confirmed death three years ago today. And there's another story out this week that is equally troubling. The Energy Department has assessed with low confidence, meaning the information's credibility is questionable, that the COVID-19 pandemic likely originated from a lab in Wuhan, China, a claim rejected by many in the scientific community early on. And tonight, FBI Director Christopher Wray says the FBI is in agreement. So, uh, as you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Now, keep in mind, other intelligence agencies still hold to their contention that it was likely the result of a natural transmission from an animal. But the reality is, for a long time, we were told that the lab leak theory was not a legitimate avenue of inquiry. And now we're finding out it just might be. So what are we to think? This is not to say that our scientific community is trying to pull one over on us like some on the right would have you believe. COVID-19 was a novel virus, never seen before. Our country's scientists did what they're trained to do, make assessments based on the information available and reassess as more information is provided. But the problem is that all of this has become so politicized and exploited by the right that when any new assessments are made, it's presented as proof that everything previously said by our scientific leaders was all lies. It comes at a time when we need to have trust in the science even more because the next pandemic could be coming. Joining me now is Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama White House policy director and an MSNBC medical contributor. And, you know, the challenge we have, Dr. Patel, is that right now, the confidence that people have, you know, in the science, in the medical community, this is a morning consult poll. How much do you trust the CDC? A lot or some was 67 percent, not bad, not much, one third. Um, the White House, 52 percent, not much, not at all. NIH, 36 percent. And then morning consult also asked, how much do you trust public health institutions to to manage a future pandemic. Not bad, a lot, 55%, but there's still a good third of the country that seems to not trust the science at all. And I think we can guess which third that is. How dangerous in that environment is it to, for us to even talk about, which we should be able to talk about, this uh, theory about the lab leak? Yeah, Joy, it's unfortunate because for decades we've been calling, and when I say we, scientists, clinicians, laboratory regulation experts have been calling for better kind of standardization, oversight, and honestly, resources. Joy, we have a number of countries that are under-resourced for just basic lab provisions. So I think that all of this is leading to 
what has amounted to some sort of government conspiracy by, you know, Biden officials to cover up some sort of lab leak. This is the truth. We will likely never come to some definitive conclusion about what happened. We know that the Wuhan market was a super spreader event. Was that the result of a natural spillover from animals to humans? Was it a lab leak? Was it something even horrible to consider, which is something intentional and bioengineered to create this much death and havoc? All of those possibilities will likely remain in people's minds because we're just not going to have 100%. But to your point, we have reached such skepticism that could you imagine going to Congress and saying, you know what, even if a lab leak is plausible, what can we do to move forward? We're all still stuck in pause to just point fingers and blame each other instead of moving forward. By the way, that includes me accepting that there were things I got wrong. There were things that everybody could probably say we could have done better. But the current dialogue does not allow for that humility or for an ability to move forward. Right. I mean, and, you know, it, it troubles me that Christopher Wray um, would take his act to Fox News to, to talk to them. Right. This is the network that deliberately lied about the election, laughed about it behind the backs of their viewers, but then put people on the air who they themselves believed were to be liars about the election. It's just hard for me to sort of fathom that that would be the audience uh, that, that he would take this particular piece of information to. And we've had this atmosphere where violence violence against Asian Americans resulted from the sort of obsessive, you know, anti sort of China rhetoric uh, that we got from the previous president. So are you concerned that even us having this, which should be a rational conversation about whether China, which has not been super transparent, let's be clear about COVID, that it could be dangerous to first even have this conversation? Yeah, it's dangerous to have that conversation without even understanding the entire scope of what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, one racial, ethnic, any sort of group of people, yet that's exactly what people are hearing. Everybody's pointing fingers at China or any. It, it, at the end of the day, this was absolutely a novel virus, number one. Number two, how it got here and how it spread to this degree of chaos is something we all deserve answers to. But even the hearing today that the subcommittee convened, Joy, I didn't hear any of that rational dialogue. I just heard people saying things like, well, I got a booster and I still got infected and I was told I needed to you know, have X, Y, and Z and it was a mandate. And the thing that really galled me as a physician was that I heard about all these rates of mental health and all these issues that are right and to bring up. But nobody talked about the fact that we're denying people access to care, that we're cutting off Medicaid, access to insurance for people, and that that's really what we should concentrate on is how to provide a safety net to a world that has literally been killed by a virus. And that's yeah. that doesn't happen. And unfortunately, Joy, that's not going to happen anytime soon in this climate. Yeah, unfortunately. It's just, it's all become political and ideological and wild and not good. Uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, thank you. Always appreciate you. Coming up next on The Readout, this year's Black History Month concludes with an uplifting ceremony for the survivors of one of the most violent, hateful events that ever happened in this country. Stay with us. If a race has no history, if it has no traditions that are respected and taught to the young people, then it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and thus in danger of becoming exterminated. 
Civil rights attorney Ben Crump quoting Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the father of Black History Month at the NAACP Image Awards. An important reminder of why we teach our children of all races Black history. Because Black history is American history. So on this final day of Black History Month 2023, I would like to bring you a story about the search for closure and of drawing triumph out of tragedy. The living known survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, Mother Viola Fletcher, her brother, Hughes Van Ellis, known as Uncle Red, and Lessie Benningfield Randall, who as young children lived through one of the worst atrocities of racist terrorist violence in American history, when a white mob burned and looted, and with the help of the U.S. of U.S. military jets, bombed the prosperous Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street. Those survivors, all now over 100 years old, witnessed almost indescribable horror. But they've also seen so many of the other tragedies and triumphs of the last century of black history. They lived through the struggle for civil rights and the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others, but also the election of the first black president, Barack Obama, as well as the first black woman vice president, Kamala Harris. They were on hand as Joe Biden became the first American president to visit Tulsa and acknowledge the hell they endured. And they're still fighting for reparations from the city of Tulsa and other entities. But they're also living their best lives. In 2021, two survivors, siblings Ms. Fletcher and Mr. Van Ellis, flew more than 6,000 miles to Ghana and were given a family welcome in the motherland. Today, they came full circle, traveling to Ghana's embassy here in Washington, D.C., where they were awarded Ghanaian citizenship as part of Ghana's Remembrance Day a celebration of their African roots and testament to their resilience. Nearly 210 years of history between them and standing in victory over hate and violence, a literal living testament to black history. We love to see it. And that's tonight's readout. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.